I'm Beth Bennett, and this is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, December 15th, 2015. Coming up, I'll interview Craig Hover, author of A World to Come Home to, Ending Global Warming in Our Lifetime. Craig is a licensed professional engineer with more than 30 years of engineering, project and facilities management, financial services, and consulting experience. In his book, he lays out a comprehensive vision of implementing sustainable strategies for reducing carbon emissions and reversing the current trends in climate change. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Over half of the Earth's photosynthetic production occurs in the oceans. This is an old statistic. It's been known for over 40 years. Recent technological advances in gene sequencing, similar to those allowing study of the human microbiome, have been unraveling how and where these microbes participate in ocean biogeochemical processes. But the Earth's changing climate is predicted to decrease carbon fixation by these microbial photosynthesizers. And as they change, so too will populations of organisms which feed on them. In a review published in the journal Science last week, Dr. Marianne Moran from the University of Georgia urges inventorying the ocean microbiome in terms of cells, genes, transcripts, and proteins. These data will allow oceanographers to characterize critical ecosystem functions in the oceans and predict how they may change with climate change. Last week, Nearly 500 scientists, ethicists, legal experts, and advocacy groups from more than 20 countries came together, not in Paris, but in Washington, D.C., to write guidelines for the use of gene editing in humans. The meeting highlighted China's emerging prominence in genomics. Much of the discussion surrounded an April publication by Chinese researchers who used the new technology called CRISPR to modify a gene in human embryos which had been modified to make them non-viable. A position statement released at the end of the meeting by its organizers did not go as far as condemning such experiments, but they did say that a host of ethical and safety issues should be resolved before embryos are modified for clinical applications. Despite differences about how far to go in applying gene editing to the unborn, nearly everyone agreed that efforts to use this new technology after birth to correct defects in non-reproductive cells, another form of gene therapy, essentially. These efforts should continue. This was reported last week in the journal Nature. Finally, experts on movement disorders have been wondering about a strange gait pattern that's common among top Russian officials, including President Vladimir Putin and Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev. The gait involves a consistently reduced right arm swing. By studying YouTube videos, movement disorder enthusiast Professor Bas Blum and his team realized the strange gait was common among Russian top officials. Since the strange gait is also a common early warning sign of Parkinson's disease, he was even curiouser. Searching for other possible explanations, Bloom's team encountered a training manual of the former Russian KGB, giving the instruction that when moving, quote, it is absolutely necessary to keep your weapon against the chest or in the right hand, end quote. 
Once they had this explanation, the researchers found other examples of a reduced arm swing related to weaponry training. For example, cowboys of the Wild West, depicted in movies, frequently have a reduced arm swing. So for some people, a stiff arm might not be a sign of a medical disease. And in the Christmas issue of the British Journal of Medicine, the researchers recommend adding this gunslinger's gait to the differential diagnosis options for a reduced arm swing. For local happenings, see the Fisk Planetarium website, that's F-I-S-K-E, for a show on one of the most powerful solar eruptions ever recorded, which hit the Earth in 1859, the so-called Carrington event. A laser show at the Fisk Planetarium Friday, December 19th at 9 p.m. describes this event and the effect it had on society at the time. The show concludes with an exploration of recent research into solar storms to understand and predict their occurrence. are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Beth Bennett. On the phone with me is Craig Hover, author of A World to Come Home to, Ending Global Warming in Our Lifetime. Craig spent nearly two decades working in the electric power industry in Southern California and has written a recent book in which he explains how aggressive development of renewable energy sources will allow us to reduce carbon emissions and minimize our reliance on fossil fuels. Good morning, Craig. Good morning, Beth. Thank you for having me on your show. Thank you for getting up early to talk to us. I hope it's <laughs> not quite as snowy in California as it is oh, here. Oh, no, it's, it, it's sunny here. I, I was listening to the news there, and, and yeah, it seems some, somewhat ironic that we're going to be talking about global warming while it's snowing there in, in, in Boulder. Well, we could definitely so. make some explanations for it, but I don't think we need to go That's there right. this morning. I think we have no, plenty of material to work with from your book, and what great timing following the recent um, talks yes. in Paris. And I think a summary of your book is a great supplement to that because they came up with all these ambitious guidelines, but you have all these great solutions that we can really start implementing. So before Correct. we get to those, um, maybe you could, you have such a clear explanation of the science. Maybe you could spend just a couple minutes talking about the physics of global warming. Um, the, the physics of global warming really comes down to something very simple, and it's the greenhouse effect, and we've long known about this. And there's, there's 14 different uh, climate drivers that, that drive the climate on the Earth, and most of them have time frames of too long to, to influence uh, what we're seeing right now, and, and some of them are too short. It turns out that the greenhouse effect is right in the right window to produce the effects that we're seeing over the time frame that we're seeing. And the, we also know that, that um, the greenhouse effect, which is actually beneficial um, when it's uh, kept within, within um, certain bounds, is actually what allows life to be flourish here on, on the Earth. Um, we know that the, um, the, uh, the three primary, what they call greenhouse gases, are water vapor, carbon dioxide, and, and methane, and that's in their order of presence in, in the atmosphere. Um, most of the effect of, uh, of uh, the greenhouse effect is due to water vapor. Uh, the next one is, is carbon dioxide, which, of course, we know is being 
generated in massive quantities by the burning of all the fossil fuel that's quite well known by now. And then their third on the list, which is way down on the scale, is methane, which is kind of a dark horse that actually has the capacity to to outrun the effects of carbon dioxide, and, and not in the long term, but but um, here in the relatively short term. Um, the greenhouse effect operates by the fact that as incoming sunlight comes into the into, onto the surface of the planet, um, some of that's absorbed by the atmosphere, some of it's reflected back into space before it gets here, and most of it's um, absorbed by the Earth itself. Some of that absorption then is uh, generated into um, infrared light, which is just below the visible spectrum, and is reflected back up into the atmosphere. Most of that leaves the atmosphere and back into space, but some of it bounces off the uh, these greenhouse gases that are in the atmosphere, and they get reflected back into the atmosphere and onto the surface. So the more of the greenhouse gases there are in the atmosphere, the um, the, the warmer the, the surface temperature gets. Uh, it's been, uh, the, the analogy has been drawn that carbon dioxide is like the uh, thermostat that controls the temperature on the surface of the planet. Less carbon dioxide, the cooler it is, more carbon dioxide, the warmer it is. So it, this is very straightforward. Um, I think the thing that is that is lurking here that's that's really the dangerous issue, and it and it centers on this two degree temperature rise problem that we hear a lot about, and and that is that the uh, this this two degree Celsius temperature rise is, is going to be enough to thaw the Arctic uh, and lead to an ice free Arctic. Uh, we've already used up half of that already uh, since uh, over the last two hundred years. And the um, the um, what happens if we get to that point is we reach what I call a point of no return, where the uh, thawing permafrost and the um, the uh, the uh, methane hydrate coming from shallow the shallow East Siberian Arctic Sea uh, will go into the atmosphere and and uh, change this this ratio of the uh, of the greenhouse gases, it's been estimated that a that a, a mere one percent of the uh, methane that's currently sequestered within the um, East Siberian Arctic Sea, if that becomes airborne, uh, it's going to be enough to raise the uh, methane concentration fourfold, which will actually make it more potent than carbon dioxide. The so reason the this is so so, sorry. So the the common uh, analogy that people like to use of greenhouse uh, effect or or global warming is of our car that you let it sit on a summer day and the greenhouse gases act like the glass so that the the um, electromagnetic radiation from the sun the light energy can come in and then it it morphs into infrared and can't get back out through the glass. So there's actually several different types of glass, if you will, in the atmosphere. There's these different gases that have different potencies for warming the Earth. And, That's a good analogy. I like that. And, uh, you know, it just struck me as you were talking that um, all of the fixes we think about really focus on carbon and so, you know, so that's mainly CO2, but we really need to think about methane. But with the melting of the ice caps, we're going to be increasing water vapor in the atmosphere also. That is correct, and, and that's, that's part of the, um, what's, uh, so, I'll say, so insidious about this, this problem is that as we 
increase the amount of methane in the atmosphere coming from a thawing Arctic. Of course, that increases the air temperature. That increases the amount of water vapor that can be held in the air. That increases the air temperature again, which increases the amount of uh, methane that can get released. And away we go on what's called a positive feedback loop. And, and it turns into a runaway event, which actually accelerates over time. So, right, so once, right. Yeah, which is really, really dangerous. And I don't think it's well enough understood. And those mechanisms have not, have not yet been incorporated into the climate models that are typically used by the IPCC. I mean, they're in the process of being incorporated, but as of now, um, uh, the, the, the severity of what we're facing is, is, is not well published. Right, and I think that one thing that's been really difficult for people is the gloom and doom scenario that accompanies this kind of positive feedback loop. And I, I think the great thing about your book is there's so many positive steps we can take that will have Correct. big effects. So I think in in the limited time that we have left, let's talk about some of those because some of them were completely new to me and very exciting. So um, I really want to jump to the big ones, but I think we should start with some of the, the first um, steps that you described, some of the easy fixes. Yeah, the, I call them the, the, the uh, you know, the easy stuff, which is you know, the things that we, we are familiar with a lot, like you know recycling and, and planting trees and putting solar panels on your roof and, and eating less red meat and a whole myriad of activities like that. And those are all important to do. Um, um, they have an effect, and they also train us to think in terms of preserving, preserving the planet, which is really, really important. We have to change the way we think about this problem. So, exactly. Um, yeah. Um, and in your travels in Boulder, you know, that's the, those kind of fixes are pretty widespread. And I'm sure you've been traveling right. around the country talking about your book. Have you been getting a sense that people are implementing these into their lives? I get a sense that, that many people are. And I, I also get the sense that, which is quite, quite gratifying to me personally, that there is a, there's a significant shift in people's attitudes that have occurred just over the last 24 months. That, uh, and we, we see that reflected in the Paris Accord. Um, I, think, I think we may actually just be able to solve this thing with, with the change in attitude that I'm seeing. More and more people are waking up and becoming aware and, and doing things uh, that, that are, many of them are quite simple. Um, um, some people, like myself, actually are being motivated to you know, step it up a notch, um, take the next step and become more active. Um, and uh, more of a, an activist type of, of role in, you know, getting out there and, and, and telling people about the problem and not just telling people about the problem, but also working toward solutions. That's one of the things that I gravitate toward myself is it's good to know about the problems, and we've heard a lot about that with the demonstration and marches and, and things like that. What's really effective, I think, is now we're moving into a phase where People are saying, okay, now we got this problem. How are we actually going to fix this thing? And, um, and I'm seeing much more of that. There's, a, there's a groups out here that I'm becoming affiliated with that, that actually you know, get their feet on the ground and, and roll up their sleeves and get out there and actually do something um, um, uh, on various fronts, whether it's, whether it's um, being more, uh, you know, more, more um, types of buildings that, you know, how we can insulate buildings better, um, proliferation of solar, um, uh, being more conservative in, in our water usage, more cognizant of uh, what we drive. Um, uh, all those things are, are, people are starting to 
become much more aware of those things. Um, and there's so many, sorry, there's so many sources of that information. And let me just remind our listeners that today on our science show, How on Earth, we're talking with Craig Hover, author of A World to Come Home to, Ending Global Warming in Our Lifetime. So let's go back to Craig's ambitious proposal for reducing our reliance on fossil fuels to reverse the ongoing increase in global temperatures and climate change and jump into some of the bigger steps that we can yeah. take as a society because these are where I think the biggest effects will make themselves known. And one of them that I just thought was fascinating and I had never heard of before I read your book was the compressed air scenario. So maybe you Isn't could... that interesting? That is fantastic. And I just love the idea of using the earth as a battery to store solar power. So maybe you could yeah. could give us a description and, and some there were, there's actually communities that are doing this. Let's hear about those. Yeah, the, uh, we, we know that the renewables are hampered by their intermittence, which means like solar can only work when, when uh, the sun is shining and, and wind only works when the wind's blowing. But we use power all day long, um, albeit not as much at night, but we still use it. Um, one of the things that's hampered the renewable uh, arena is how do we store this energy? Well, we keep looking to batteries, but, but we know that batteries... Uh, are hampered by just the amount of mass that's needed, and they, just the technology isn't there yet. It might be one day, but we need to look at solutions that are available right now, given the time frame in which we need to act. Uh, compressed air energy storage um, was actually developed more than 20 years ago. Uh, the first such plant was one in Germany, then there's another one that went up uh, in, um, I think it's, um, oh, one of the states in the south. I don't remember off the top of my head. Right. I'm, um, I'm thinking Alabama or Mississippi. Yes, one of those correct. rings yeah, about. Alabama, that's right. Yeah. Um, what happens with the compressed air energy storage is that the, uh, the power that's generated during the day or when the wind is blowing can actually be used to uh, compress, like a, uh, put air into a uh, subterranean void, like a cavern or a salt dome or something like that, that... Um, uh, you can compress the air in there, and then when you actually need the power, you can actually re reverse the flow back up through uh, a turbine to generate electricity. And these plants can provide hundreds of megawatts of power for many, many hours at a time. Um, one of the things that's exciting is that it's been determined that about 80% of the geography of um, the United States is amenable to this type of technology. So it's, it's a way to, to be able to store energy in, in large quantities, right now we have the technology, and, and certain uh, there are plants going up like uh, Texas, California, are, are installing these types of plants. That's really uh, so exciting to hear that. And is. can can they be coupled with existing um, power plants to use the turbines that are already yes. okay? They they can. That's one of the nice things about this technology. It's it's it's. The mechanics of it is well known, and because it's so familiar to the power industry already, it's a very easy next step to take. And both wind and solar can be used to compress the air. Correct. Yeah, it's just like doesn't care where the electricity comes from. It's uh, as long as you've got the power to to uh, run the compressors. Uh, yeah, wind and solar are both excellent. Even hydro are are, are excellent sources for that, which is which is why we can put up enough solar and, and turbine, wind turbines to actually 
provide all the electricity that we need. And, of course, um, the other big use of fossil fuels is in our transportation system. <laughs> and yes. your description of hydrogen was particularly compelling in the book, too. And I loved how you discussed, um, I forget who it was, but there is um, a fairly wealthy individual that's that's trying to start uh, kind of a bunch of convenience stores across the Northeast, I believe, where you could yeah. get hydrogen fuel for your car. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I think that's going to be a big difference, too. Yeah, Tom Sullivan, uh, the owner of Lumber Liquidators, actually bought Proton Energy because he could see that the... Uh, the ability to uh, have have uh, hydrogen available for automotive use could be a game changer, and I I believe that too. In fact, when I was researching the book, that's when I learned about this technology of the what's called a fuel cell electric vehicle, which runs on compressed hydrogen. Um, the hydrogen can be produced by uh, elect electrolysis, which um, is electricity and water. And the amount of and the electricity can come from the renewables like solar and wind, and the amount of water that we need is is minuscule and compared to the uh, to uh, to the current water that we uh, use right now. Um, hydro the uh, the fuel cell electric vehicle. One of the things that's so wonderful about this technology is that it overcomes the the uh, range and recharging problems that that persist for the battery electrics. I mean, the electric vehicle is a, is a great concept. The stumbling block right now with the battery electrics is that, that is the range and, and how long it takes to recharge them. The thing that's so wonderful about hydrogen-powered vehicles is that they have the range and the speed of refueling uh, that we currently enjoy with our uh, petroleum-powered cars. Um, um, I, after I wrote the book and published it, I, was, I had it published, I was... I was um, I had the opportunity, maybe I shouldn't say it, but I'm going to say it anyway, I had the opportunity to be able to actually get one of these vehicles. I've got Hyundai's uh, Tucson fuel cell vehicle. I, it, I'm not trying to plug them, but it's it's exceeding my expectations. It's it's a fabulous car. Um, oh, that's fantastic. Uh, and yeah, is it is. possible to, to convert an internal combustion engine to run off a hydrogen fuel cell? No, okay. um, it's not. But what it is, what, what it can be done is that a hydrogen fuel cell technology can be embedded in current current uh, automotive frames like our car is a uh, it's a Tucson I mean it's, uh, you can you can see them on the street all the time um, so which makes it practically invisible and which is actually nice I mean you can uh, it's a regular car so it, right. it, hydrogen technology can actually can actually um, uh, make our need for oil for transportation uh, obsolete in a relatively short order. And the that's that's a already there. That's a wonderfully but, optimistic note to end on. And we are out of time. Thank you yeah. so much, Craig, for talking to us this morning. Thank you, Beth. I appreciate the opportunity. You are very welcome. Bye bye. Bye bye now. That was Craig Hover, author of A World to Come Home to: Ending Global Warming in Our Lifetime. You heard a sobering assessment of the role of fossil fuels in climate change and an encouraging vision of moving away from our current dependence on fossil fuels for energy. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is me, Beth Bennett. I produced this week's show, which was engineered by Maeve Conran. 
Additional contributions by Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Martha and the Vandellas. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org, that's all one word, How on Earth Radio, to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.